I'm so excited to, to bring this message to you. I'm just excited about Christmas. Anybody else just love Christmas? Come on, you guys are discouraging. <laughs> really? Anybody like presents? Anybody like cookies? Anybody like home-cooked meals? I mean, hot chocolate? You know, can we, can we go on? It's not a loaded question. Anybody like Christmas? All right. Man, I'm, I'm going to come to the jolly side of the room. Pray for y'all over there. So uh, listen, I, I love preaching uh, on this, this theme in this Christmas season. And what we've decided this year to do, and honestly, something I've never done before, is we are, we're taking the theme of the Advent throughout this Christmas season. So last weekend, uh, what we did is I gave a little bit of background and understanding of, of what the Advent is. And, and we even described what we have sitting up here on this table. This is an Advent wreath. So if you're here today, you missed last week, and you have no idea what an Advent wreath is or, or what this is all about, don't feel bad. That's where a lot of us were last week, okay? So Google it, and uh, there's a lot to learn. Uh, but we've decided we're going to use the Advent wreath as, as a pattern for us throughout this Christmas season. And, and today, we're going to be talking about the second candle in this theme of the second candle of the Advent wreath. Before we do that, I need to mention something. Let me just do a little pastoral work here. Uh, this week, and many of you saw the post on Facebook, but yesterday, one of our members, uh, Carol Byers, she's, she's been sick for quite some time now. She went home to be with the Lord yesterday morning at her home with her husband, Ted, and their son, Steve, at her side. And I, I just want to let you know, Ted was here in the service, this, in the first service this morning. I want to let you know that the service is going to be this uh, Wednesday. There'll be a viewing at 10 a.m. The service will be at 11 o'clock. Uh, it's open to the public. If any of you would like to come and be a part of that, uh, that's available for you. But maybe even more important than that announcement, I want to just ask you to, to hold Ted and his family up in prayer this week. Would you do that? I'm just so thankful for him and Carol and the impact they had on my life. I've known them most of my life, and they have been a tremendous uh, blessing and an encouragement to me, and, and uh, I'm going to resist the urge to get started. I'll have plenty of opportunities to eulogize Carol later this week, but an incredible, incredible family to our church. I was thinking about Advent as I was there at their house yesterday because uh, the first candle that we lit last Sunday was the, the candle of hope. And if we're going to light that candle again, the, the hope candle tells us that there's something better in front of us. That's what hope says. Hope is a vision for a better future. Hope is, is the reason that yesterday the tears of sorrow were mingled with joy. Because the, the Byers family has a hope they, they understand something theologically and practically in their life that hope is bigger than your lifetime. Hope is bigger than your life. That means when, when you come to the end of life and, and, and some people would just have nothing but sorrow because maybe prayers felt unanswered and, and miracles didn't come and healing didn't happen. Those that have a hope that is bigger than this lifetime understand something to be true. They understand that the hope for healing is anchored to the reality of heaven. Today, I want to assure you, Carol is not sick. And so we have hope. And hope, the Bible says, is an anchor for the soul. It stands there, resolute. It gives us this promise. The Bible says it this way in Hebrews 11, verse 1. It says, faith is the evidence of the things that we hope for. 
And it's the certainty, it's the confidence, it's the assurance of what we can't yet see. Hope says it's going to get better. We believe that. Do you believe that today? There's hope today. It's going to get better. But we're also going to light this second candle today. And, And the second candle of the Advent symbolizes love. Now, I know Pastor Chris worked hard to get this candle straight. I said in the first service, my wife was sitting right over there. And I said, for all the OCD people, I wasn't looking at her, but I know who I was talking to. I said, for all the OCD people, we're going to try to get this straight. Because if I don't straighten this candle, none of you are going to listen to anything that I have to say today. How many of you know what that's like? So we're going to try to keep it straight. The love candle speaks a message to us a little bit different than the hope candle because while, while, while hope stands in front of you and says it's going to get better, hope, hope doesn't stand still. In fact, hope comes to where you are. Hope doesn't stand out in front of you and say it's going to get better or love doesn't rather. Love says I'm coming to where you are. Love says, I'm not going to leave you where you're at. I'm going I'm to find you. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to come to you. In the same sense that the Bible says in the book of James, faith without works is dead faith. In other words, it's no faith at all. In the same sense, love without action is no love. It's dead love. And so love has to move. It has to move. It has to go somewhere. It has to respond. It can't sit idle. It can't stand resolute. Love comes to where you are. And can I tell you, in this Advent season, we are celebrating a love that compelled God to come to where we are. He stepped out out of glory. He clothed himself in human flesh. Why? So that he could be with us, Emmanuel, God with us. Love comes to where you are. Love has to move. It has to do something. It has to give. The Bible says in in John 3, 16, many of you could quote this verse. We're going to give you a cheat sheet right behind me. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave. See, love has to give. And since God loved the most, He gave the most. He gave his only son. Why? Because that is what love does. And I'm going to tell you today that the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his his virgin birth, his sinless life, his miracles, his bodily sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection, it is the greatest story of the love of God that has ever been told. On a Sunday morning, I know I can get more amens about the story of redemption than that. Come on, should we, do we need to turn the lights back up? Is it somebody decaffeinated the coffee this morning, didn't they? Somebody gave you the low octane stuff. So I want you to understand today that as we're leaning in to Advent, as we're leaning in to the gospel, it's a story of love coming to us. And this is the greatest story that's ever been told. In fact, I know Chris acknowledged them earlier, but I just got to say, I'm super glad to have some of my friends here, Val's family. It's very near and dear to us, her mom, Donna, and Val's sister, Tori, and Tori's husband, Kevin. So glad you guys are here, and I won't make you clap for them again, but let me tell you why I'm mentioning you now. I was thinking this week about a Christmas production 
that we used to do together. See, Donna was my choir director, so we worked uh, together a lot. And we used to do a Christmas production called The Greatest Story Ever Told. Should I sing it? No, 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 let's not sing it. Anyway, The Greatest Story Ever Told. And it was the Christmas story. How many of you believe it is the greatest story that's ever been told? But there's a story that plays out in the Old Testament that I want to share with you today. It's not the greatest story that's ever been told, but if I had to give it a title, and we were going to do it as a production, I would call it the second greatest story that's ever been told. I don't know if that would, you know, fill the seats or not, but I believe that this is the second greatest story that's ever been told. And the only reason it's not the best is because we know the best story. But like the Christmas story, this one, it it begins as a love story. It it begins with a young couple who falls in love, who who wants to get married. They get engaged. Like Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, this young couple has dreams and goals for their future together. The main characters in the second greatest story that's ever been told are one of the minor prophets by the name of Hosea. And his fiance, his beautiful fiance, Gomer. See, I have to emphasize beautiful so you get over the name part. Because that's unfortunate. Let's just, let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room. It's hard to hear a love story about a girl named Gomer, okay? It just is. But that's her name. I'm sorry, I didn't write it. And, and so this love story begins to play out between Hosea and Gomer. And, and he loves this girl so, so very much. And there's some parallels to the Christmas story because Joseph, while he was pledged to be married to Mary, he finds out that she is pregnant. I mean, that's a problem in the relationship. Okay. He finds out that she's expecting a child. And Joseph is reeling emotionally. He doesn't know what to do. He's trying to make decisions about how he's going to handle this situation. And to make matters worse, and really, it probably made it worse, her only explanation for the situation is, this is of God. (laughs) Now, you ever had somebody try to Jesus juke you in a conversation where like, they're doing something that you know they shouldn't do, and their explanation is, oh, no, the Lord told me. Like, when they throw down the God told me card, like, what can you do? Like, you know, I, I, can't, I can't argue with you about if God, to, I don't know if God told you or not. So that, that's it. That's all he gets. God told me that this is of God. And so Joseph, he doesn't know what he's going to do. The Bible says he was troubled in his spirit. Look, look, in fact, before we go, go to Hosea, look at Matthew chapter one in the Christmas story. Verse 19 says it like this, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. Now, now, let me just stop and explain what the law said. Now, she could have been punished to the full extent of the law. And the full extent of the law said that a woman could be stoned for committing adultery. And, and it would have been considered adultery even though they were just engaged. They were serious about this betrothal period. And so you got to understand what's going through Joseph's mind when it says kind of nonchalantly that he was faithful to the law. So he's got that idea going in his head. That's one option. Yet, it says, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. So there's the tension. I know what the law says I can do, but I love her too. And so then it says, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. 
Let's just make this thing go away. I'm heartbroken. I can't fix it. I don't, want to, I don't want anything bad to happen to her, but certainly nothing good is going to come of this relationship anymore. So I'm just going to divorce her quietly and move on with my life. And that was the situation that he found himself in. But look a little further with me. It says in verse 20, but after he had considered this, and let me just pause and say that's good counsel for not making quick decisions about difficult things. I mean, imagine if he had just exploded right then and made a rash decision and ran out of the house. Like, how much would he have missed out on the will of God? But, but he considered this. He took time to consider it. And it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I can't imagine he didn't wake up in that moment. And then the angel says, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. You skip down to verse 24, and it says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. And that's just the introduction to the greatest story that's ever been told. But let me, let me go back to the second greatest story, because Hosea had a very similar situation. In fact, Hosea was also suspicious about Gomer. He had heard rumors. He had heard stuff that he, he didn't want to believe, but he heard it from enough sources. He had gotten enough evidence together, and he finally came to the same conclusion as Joseph. This relationship is over. I, I, I can't do this. Like, I, I know too much. I've heard too much. I can't, I can't marry this woman. And so Hosea makes up his mind that he, and, and by the way, he too is faithful to the law. <laughs> and and, and he, he knows, like, I got options here. I mean, I could really let her have it. But he decides, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm just going gonna, gonna to walk away. I'm just going to walk away. I, I'm not, I'm not going to pursue this relationship. And that's where he's at when he too has a divine visitation. God speaks to Hosea the same way that he spoke to Joseph. But here is where the stories take a drastic turn. Okay, they were kind of similar up to this moment. But when the angel or the, when the Lord shows up to Hosea, the message that he gives him is nothing like the message that Joseph got. Okay, Joseph hears that, hey, the Holy Spirit's working. I'm in this. You know, Mary, she's still pure. She's still a virgin. I mean, this is a supernatural work of God. No, the, God shows up to Hosea and he says, Hosea, your worst fears are true. All the things that you thought might be true, that you hoped weren't true, they are true. Hosea, Gomer is a harlot. Gomer's been sleeping around. She's been in and out of bed with different, different men. Oh, and, and hey, Hosea. Don't miss this part. I want you to marry her still. What? I mean, what? Right? I mean, just put yourself in this situation. I mean, we, we've all read the Christmas story many times, and, and I don't know if you're like me. I've, I've thought about Joseph in that situation and thought, man, that's tough. I mean, if you're Joseph, to, to have to wrap your mind around the fact that God says your wife's pregnant, but don't worry, it's, it's from the Holy Spirit. That's tough, but hey, I mean, Hosea, come on. He's like, no way, Hosea. Like, <laughs> like you. 
you don't know anything about hard news until you hear the news I heard. God showed up to me and he said, I'm supposed to marry my fiance, but she did cheat on me. She has been with other men. She is sleeping around. And God said, I'm still supposed to marry her. Can, can, can I just make an application right here? I mean, we're not far into the story, but we're, we're far enough along. Let me just ask this question. Have you ever had a situation in your life where God asked something or, or did something or allowed something in your life and it just didn't make sense? I mean, I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. You know, sometimes we're too quick to spiritualize it. Let's be honest. This makes no sense. Amen. I mean, come on. If this, this makes no sense. You ever been there where God allowed something to take place in your life? Somebody did something or, or, or something. And, and it's, not, it's not even right. I mean, it's not even right. You're just looking at it going, this makes no sense. Can I just give you a, a, an application? I mean, this is, this is the low-hanging fruit in the sermon. We can all get this, but here, here's what God is saying. God is saying through this whole story, there is a message even in the mess. I mean, it might, it might look like it makes no sense. And granted, it doesn't at this point. But even in, even in this mess, God has a message that he wants to communicate. And I just I want to say that to you today. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every, every pain you experience is a prophetic word from God. I'm not saying every bad thing that happens happened because God's trying to communicate something prophetically. What I am saying is that, that in spite of all that, because bad things do happen to good people. Because sometimes you have to deal with the repercussions of other people's decisions. And sometimes it was your bad decision, and now you're just having to deal with the results of it. But in spite of all that, what I am saying is that God's sovereignty is bigger than all of that. And even in your pain, God has a purpose. Even, even in your pain, God can still do something. He can orchestrate something for your good. Listen, God sent his son to die for the life that you are living right now. He has no intention of wasting it. No intention of wasting it. God has purpose in the pain. He has a message that he wants to communicate even in the mess that you're in. And for some of us, it feels like, it feels like we're looking at the backside of an embroidery. You know, those embroideries, and it's a beautiful picture, but when you look at the backside of it, it's just a mess. It's, it makes no sense. And, and we look at the circumstances of our life like that. We look at it and we say, this just doesn't make any sense. But I want to tell you today, God is still Lord. He's still ruling over all of your life. And one of these days, you're going to see it from the other side. One of, the one of these days, you're going to realize that what was a mess was, in fact, a masterpiece in the works. That God was doing something. That his word is true when he says to us in Romans 8, 28. For we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. If you're called according to the purpose of God, if you don't give up on your calling, if you just stay, stay plugged in, abide in Christ, don't give up. What that verse tells me is that on the other side of crazy, there's a crown. That God has something he's actually doing for my good. And he's going to work it out if I'll trust him. Now, listen, I don't say that today because it just preaches well. I'm going to say again, your situation might not make any sense. And I'm not going to dare try to exegete the scripture and say that Hosea's situation made sense. It doesn't. And maybe yours doesn't either. 
What I want you to see is that even, even through the chaos, even in, through the confusion of whatever it might be you're facing, God is still sovereignly moving and orchestrating and working and putting things together, all things together for your good. He's doing it for your good. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the, the prophets didn't just hear a word from God and speak a word from God. They, they had to live the word. I mean, they had to embody it. Like their life was a, a pageant play. Their life was, was a story that was unfolding. It was, it was like C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia. The, the story of Hosea's life is an allegory for redemption. It's an allegory for what God wants to do for, for his people, Israel, in this text, but also for all of us, for humanity. It, it's a story, and that's what we're seeing in this second greatest story that's ever been told. Let me just read some of it to you. Go with me in Hosea chapter 1 to the third verse. It says simply, so he married Gomer, the daughter of the blame. So if you're wondering whose fault this was today, her father's to blame. Just going to let that hang in the atmosphere for a moment. She conceived, it says, and she bore him a son. Look at the next verse. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel. Because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Now, now get this. God says, name your son Jezreel. And I'm sure he must have thought he misheard or that maybe God misspoke. Because you know, you know how we do. We get ahead of God. And when, when God tells us to do something that doesn't make sense and then we do it, we're like, okay, all right. What now? Like, what are you doing for me? What, what do I get in return? And so he marries Gomer. And, and they have a son. And God says, I want you to name him Jezreel. And the name Jezreel in the Hebrew looks like and sounds a lot like the name Israel. And so I'm sure in that moment he thought you, you said Name him Israel. That's awesome. That's a name of promise. I mean, Israel means God preserves. So that's the plan, right? I married Gomer, and now you're going to preserve. And God says, no, 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 not Israel. Not God preserves. God scatters. Name him Jezreel. And, and, and then he gave him very, a very specific word. He said, this, this is a judgment against Jehu. Now, we're not going to go, go there for time's sake, but I'll just tell you the short version. Jehu was one of the previous kings of Israel. He followed the wicked king Ahab, and, and, and God had spoken through the prophet that Ahab was going to be judged, but Jehu carried out that judgment so harshly, so severely, that now there was just too much blood on his hands, and God was going to judge him. Here's what Jehu did. He went down to the place where Ahab's family lived, and he told him, I want the heads of all the princes delivered to me in baskets. So 70 young men in one day lost their heads. And they were delivered in baskets to King Jehu, who said, I want you to stack them in two piles outside the city gate. The next morning, he said, I want everybody in town to come out here. So everybody comes outside. And any person that had any relation to Ahab, not just, not just 
familial relation. I mean, it, it could be a coworker. It could be somebody that worked for him. It could be somebody that went to high school with him. Anybody that was connected to King Ahab, he slaughtered them that day. And so this is the moment that, that God is looking back on. And he says, this is judgment coming to the house of Jehu. And, and if that says anything to us, if there's any application for us, it, it ought to just be this. The Bible says, surely your sins will find you out. See, Jehu lived his whole life thinking he just got away with that. But God brought judgment on his family line. He ended that family line. Why? Because your sins will find you out. And God brought judgment to them. And then, so, so Hosea is living this thing out. I mean, he, okay, I, I married Gomer, and, and, and I, she had my son, and, and I named him Jezreel. And apparently people didn't get the message because the next verse, verse 6 says, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Loruhama, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Loruhama, it means not loved. Another translation says that she, she did not know a father's pity. Loruhama, she did not know a father's pity. And it wasn't because she was an orphan. The reason she didn't know a father's pity is because she didn't really know who her father was. See, the reality is not only had Gomer been promiscuous before the marriage, but now that they're married and now that they have a son together, she's still running off. She's still running around, and, and, and they didn't have a, a DNA test. I mean, there's speculation. I don't really know. I don't even know if this girl is my daughter. And the Lord, in that convoluted situation, prophetically speaks, and he says, I want you to name her Loruhama. She'll never know her father's pity. God said it because what he was saying is Israel will never know her father's pity because Israel doesn't know who her father is. There's confusion among my people. They're running after all these other deities. They're running after all these other gods. They don't even know who their father is. So Hosea lives this thing out painfully. And apparently, the people didn't get the message because down in verse 8, it says, I'm still in Hosea chapter 1, after she had weaned lo Ruhama, which probably was a process of two to three years in this culture, after she had weaned their daughter, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him lo Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. See, the thing about prophecy is it, it speaks to the people that are saying it, the people that are in it. It speaks to maybe the, the culture of the day. It also speaks prophetically. It foretells something to come. Put yourself in Hosea's situation. And God says to him, I want you to name this third child, your son, Loami, which means not my people. You put that in the singular. What is he saying? Not my child. I mean, there might have been speculation about the daughter. I wasn't really sure, but I know that boy's not mine. That's not my child. I don't know. Maybe he came out with red hair. I don't, I don't know. What, but he said, that's not my child. Maybe it was the fact that their relationship had been so messed up. They, they, they had nothing of, of, of 
intimacy in so long that he said, there's no way this is my child. And he makes this declaration to his wife and to the nation. You know, the the popular theology of our day is to say we're all God's children. That, That sounds nice. People like that. We're all God's children. And in a creative sense, certainly, we're all created in his image. Every, every person, every human being bears the image of God. But if we go by what the Bible says, I'm going to tell you, a lot of God's children, he would call Loemi. They're not, not mine. They're not mine. In fact, Jesus talked about this in, in his Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of his ministry, Matthew chapter 7 Verse 2, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. He said, look, you might might identify, you might call me Lord, Lord, you might sit under my roof, but not everybody who does that is of me. In fact, Jesus was having a debate one time with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, talking about identity. Identity. And he said something that offended them. They couldn't believe that Jesus would think of them as anything less than the sons of God. And so in John chapter 8, Jesus says this to these religious leaders. Verse 42, he says, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. And then down in verse 47, he says, Whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. This is Jesus speaking to religious people. He said, you don't, you don't belong to God. Lo ami, not my children. In John chapter 1, as the gospel writer is introducing this greatest story that's ever been told, he says this about Jesus in verse 11. He says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Can I give you the good news right now? The good news is everyone has the right to become the children of God. Everybody from anywhere has the right to become the children of God if you believe in his name. But God's saying these people don't believe. They they haven't paid attention to the judgment. They haven't listened to my calling them back. They're not my people. And it looks like in the text that God is saying, you know, I'm done with Israel. Like, I'm just, I'm done. They're not my people. I'm done with them. You know, a lot of people would say that that's, that's true. They read the Bible that way. They think, you know, Israel had their chance in the Old Testament, and, and now God's moved on. He's working with the church now, and, uh, and, and he's, done with, he's done with Israel altogether. But let me tell you, that's why it's so important that when we read scripture and study scripture, we, we study broadly. You don't just read one verse. Because if you read the verses we just read, it's pretty clear. God's done. He wants nothing to do with these people anymore. He's moved on. But I'm going to tell you, there's good reason that we should still keep our eye on this little nation in the Middle East. There's good reason that they still have the attention 
of God in heaven. You can't read, you can't read these next couple verses without believing that God still has a plan for Israel. Look with me at the very end of chapter 1. It says this, verse 10. Yet, this is God speaking. Now, if you've just, if you've just received judgment from God, if you just heard God say, these are not my people, how many of you know the word yet is a breath of fresh air? Yet. God wants to speak yet to some of you. You've already put a period and God only put a comma there. Yet. It's not over. Yet. The Israelites will be like the sands on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called the children of God. In other words, in the place where they said, lo ami, it's going to be pronounced ami. In the place where it was pronounced lo ruhama, it's going to be said Ruhama. Those people that were not my people, they are going to be my people. They're going to be called the children of the living God. Now look at verse 11. He says, the people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. Now, what he had said before this was, I'm going to bless Judah, but I'm done with Israel. Israel has forsaken me. They are not my children. I'm going to, I'm going to just continue to move through the line of Judah. But now he says, no, no, no. Judah and Israel, they're going to come together. And they will appoint one leader, and they will come up out of that land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel, where God said it's cursed, and I'm done with Jezreel. Never. He said, you know what? There's coming a day Jezreel's going to be blessed. God still has a plan for Jezreel. It's interesting to, to note that Jezreel is the same plain that we know as Armageddon. God still has a work to be done in that place. And in these verses, and then all through the next chapter, Hosea chapter 2, God through Hosea prophesies about the work that he wants to do in the people of God. But, but what I want you to see is not the, the prophecies themselves. I want you to see the pageant. I want you to see how the story is lived out in the life of Hosea. The pageant begins to play out in chapter 3 of this story. And the reason I've said this is the, the second greatest story ever told is because maybe Hosea chapter 3 is the, the greatest chapter in all the Bible. It may be the greatest chapter because if you want to know, I mean, if you want to know what love looks like, if you want to know what it looks like for love to go from where it is and to come to where you are, how many of you know we don't have to look any farther than the cross? It, it's the, the epitome of love on display that Jesus would be there suspended between heaven and earth for us because he loved us. If you want to get an explanation of that love and you want to understand redemption and you want to know what, what does that look like, you got to go to this chapter right here. You got to go to chapter three of Hosea. And let me tell you what's happening. Hosea's story has gone from bad to worse. Because Gomer, not only was she unfaithful to him before their marriage, she was unfaithful after their marriage. He, he had a second child, a daughter, that, that he wasn't really sure if, if she was his daughter. And, and then she has a third child, and he knows this one's not mine. And so now Hosea is raising three kids. 
And Gomer runs off again. She leaves him. She goes back down to the red light district. She goes back down to the brothel. She, she begins to prostitute herself out to other men for money and for material possessions. And, and this, this is the moment in the story for Hosea. And maybe you've had a moment like this in your story where you just expect that now you're going to get the voice of reason. Like you, you expect that theological discourse that says, well, you know, everyone has a free will and you gave it your best. You tried uh, but you know, it, she just she just wouldn't she just wouldn't turn, and so it's time to move on. I mean, that's what we expect in this moment. I mean, how how much can any person really take? It's in this situation that God speaks to Hosea again, and what He says is absolutely unimaginable. God speaks to Hosea, and He says, "Hosea, I want you to go, and I want you to find your wife." What? Yeah, Hosea, I want you to go, and I want you to find Gomer. Go and find her. And, and don't just find her. I want you to bring her back. Look at it with me in, in chapter 3. Verse 1. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. I mean, God's not pulling any punches here. He's not saying it's not as bad as you think. He's just making it plain. She's being loved by other men. She's an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. In other words, you know, when, when David brought the ark into the Lord's temple in 2 Samuel 25, I think, the Bible says before all the people left, he gave them raisin cakes. And this was the, the epitome of, of the Bible saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. He would say, you can't have the raisin cakes and run after these other gods. Like, it's got to be one or the other here. These people want both. And yet I love them. Yet I'm coming after them. I'm going after them. And so Hosea, he goes out, he sets out on a journey. This, this is a prophet in Israel, well-known. And now he's going to places that he never would have stepped foot in. He could not even imagine himself going into these dark alleyways and these dark rooms. And, and not only is he stepping foot in that place, he's looking for his wife. And, and, and he's on this pursuit till finally he... He finds himself in inner city slums of Samaria. And he sees a crowd of people. And as he presses in closer, he realizes he's just walked up on an auction. It's a slave auction. And there's been a lot of writing in antiquity about the selling of slaves. And so we know a lot about the process. And one thing that we know is that slaves were sold naked. And as he looks there at the auction block, he's devastated when he sees his wife, Gomer, placed up on the auction block. She's standing there with all of these men staring at her naked body, ready to bid on her. 
Hosea's trying to wrap around his mind around all of this, and he, I can imagine he just blurts out, no, 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 that's my wife. That's my wife. And the auctioneer, without batting an eye, he just responds, who'll start the bidding at five silver coins? I got five. Where's six? Hosea's going, no, 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 wait, what's happening? You, no, no, you can't. You can't sell her. She's mine. I got six. I want seven. Who'll give me eight? Who'll give me eight? Who'll give me nine? Hosea's panicking. What am I going to do here? And God speaks a word to him. God says, buy her back. Buy her back. She's my wife. What do you mean, buy her back? She's mine. I got 10. Who'll give me 12? And he starts looking. He starts digging in his pockets, and all of a sudden he jumps in. 13. I got 13. I want 14. 14. 15. The bidders slow down. I got 15. Going once. Somebody in the back says, I got 15 silver coins and a barley loaf. Hosea's like, I'm out. I can just imagine he runs back to, runs back to the wagon. He, he's looking for his resources. He comes running back out. I got 15 silver coins, a barley loaf, and a half. Going once, going twice, sold to the prophet. She's yours again. And in that moment, Hosea does the unimaginable. But, but it's not unimaginable to us because we know the greatest story. The reality is Hosea bought back what was already his. And can I just say to you today, whether you love Jesus or not, you're already his. He made you. He formed you. He knew you before the foundation of the earth was even laid. You are his today. But you know what? Love doesn't stand back. Love goes in with the highest bid. Love finds you where you are and says, you know what? I'm going to purchase back what's already mine. That's what Jesus did at the cross. Jesus came all the way to where we are, and he placed the highest bid with his own life's blood, because that's what love does. Love gives the most, and that's what Hosea did. He gave the most, and he purchased back his bride. Verse 2, so I bought her. What else could I do? I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. The going rate for an omer of barley at that time was about 15 silver coins. And a lethic was 15 and a half. It was about 15 coins and then the 15 coins, about 30 altogether. Exodus tells us that that's the going rate for a slave. It also happens to be the price that Judas got for betraying Jesus. 30 silver coins. But I want you to look at the next verse. He purchased his wife, and then it says, Then I told her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. 
and I will behave the same way toward you. Can I just say in this moment, as we just meditate on this verse, he could have said anything in that moment, right? I mean, after all he'd been through now, I mean, he owns her legally. He bought her. He could have said anything. He could have done anything. He could have let her have it. He could have punished her. He could have abandoned her. But love doesn't do that. Love, 1 Corinthians 13 says, keeps no record of wrongs. And so love goes and finds her. And the first thing he says to her is, you will live with me, not under me, not subservient to me. You're going to be with me. In other words, I'm going to see you as my bride. I'm going to see you as my helpmate, as my partner. What did he do? He, he restored dignity to her in that moment. He said, you're going to be with me. You know, you know what legalism does? Legalism says, if you do have a prayer of getting back in, you're going to have to start at the bottom. I mean, after what you did, you lost your place in line, buddy. You got to go to the back. And that's the way we, that's the way we view God sometimes. It's like the prodigal son in Luke 15 who reasoned to himself, I'm going to go back to my father's house. And when I get there, I'm going to tell him, I know I'm not worthy to be your son anymore, but I would like to just be your servant. That's not the father's heart. Bible says when that prodigal son got there before he could even get all the words of his little prepared speech out, the father called for the servants, quick, kill the fattened calf, put a ring on my son's finger, put new sandals on his feet, put a robe on him. My son who was lost has been found. He's home again. We have to celebrate this moment. That's the heart of God. That's what love does. But the second thing that he said to her was love as much as that was. This is a statement of love as well. When he says to her, you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. That's love. Make no mistake about it. That is love. Listen, love purchases you just the way you are. But love refuses to leave you that way. Love works for your good. The Bible says in John chapter 1 that when Jesus came and we beheld him, he was the fullness of grace and truth. He, he was not 50% grace, 50% truth. He was the fullness of grace and truth. He was all grace all the time, and he was all truth all the time. And can I just say, if your grace doesn't include truth, it's not grace. In fact, it's unloving. It's abusive. You might call it love, but it's abuse for you to know that somebody's doing something that's harming them, but you don't want to tell them the truth. You just want to be gracious. No, what you love is their opinion of you more than you love them. Love speaks the truth. And so Hosea, he loves her. He accepts her. He paid the highest price for her, knowing all she had done, knowing all that she was, knowing all the baggage that she carried. And yet in love, he said to her, I, I accept you. I, I, you're with me. We're together. And you got to change. You got to change. I'm going to help you. That's why I'm with you. But you have to change. And then Hosea says to her there in verse 3, and I will behave the same way toward you. Now, come on, he didn't have to say that. I mean, he didn't do anything wrong, right? He doesn't owe her anything. In fact, he could have, for the rest of his life, reminded her 
of what she did and what he didn't do. And, and, and some of you, you've had relationships with people like that. And it's no fun. If every time that you do something wrong or every time they do something wrong, they pull out the, the offenses of yesteryear and they shoot them like flaming arrows into your heart. Yeah, but at least I didn't. Yeah, but you're the one that, that's not what love does. And so Hosea makes this incredible promise. He didn't need to do this. But he said, look, you're going to be with me. And you're going to be devoted to this relationship. I'm going to make the same, I'm going to make the same commitment. I'm going to make the same covenant to you. I'm not going to live entitled. I'm not going to live like I deserve something else. It was God saying in this moment, I'm committed to you. I don't know. You've probably picked up on it already, but can I just say plainly today, you're Gomer. I'm Gomer. We are the ones that have found ourselves on the auction block, going to the highest bidder. For some, it's drugs. For some, it's alcohol. For some, it's just pleasure. For some, it's career or or, or even family. Whatever it might be, something, you've given yourself over to the highest bidder one too many times, and, and you found yourself shackled and in bondage and enslaved, and God sent Jesus, our Hosea. You know, Hosea is is the same name as Joshua, which is the Hebrew for the Greek, Jesus. Jesus is our Hosea. God sent him to purchase us with his shed blood on the cross, to pay the highest price, to ransom us, to redeem us. This, This is the picture of what redemption looks like. This is the picture of what it means to be saved, to be rescued, by God. In this moment, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Hosea again and speaks another prophetic word in the last two verses of chapter 3. It says, For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. They're going to live many days out there doing their own thing. But look at verse 5. Afterwards, afterward, the Israelites will return. And seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. There's hope that love has come and purchased us. And for some of you, your afterwards needs to begin today. For some of you, you just need to receive the offer that that is on the table that God has purchased you and redeemed you, that he doesn't count your sins against you, that he loves you. Without question, he loves you, and he's come for you, and he invites you to be with him. That's what Advent is. It's God with us. You will be with me, and I'm going to help you, but you're going to change. You're not going to be who you used to be. You're going to change because I'm, I'm with you. I'm going to help you. And you're going to know that in spite of the fact that you have promised and lied and made covenants and broke them so many times, you need to know I'm faithful and I'm going to hold myself to this thing. I'm faithful. I'm with you. For some of you today, you just need to respond to that invitation of love. 
coming to you. I want to pray for you. Would you bow your head with me all over this room? No one looking around for just a moment. Just want to ask you to be honest with God. You've heard this incredible pageant of God's redemption unfolded before us today. If you see nothing else, I pray that today in this moment, you would see the love of God bigger and grander and more audacious and more radical and reckless than you ever have before. And that you would never disqualify or count yourself out. He still holds the highest bid for you. The word of God says that with the shed blood of Jesus, he redeemed us. And it doesn't say he did it after we got our life straightened up. It doesn't say he did it after we got things back on track, put away our bad habits, reprioritized. No, the Bible says, Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, while we were still in the slums, God demonstrated his love for us in this. Christ died for us. He paid the highest price. And if you're here today and, and you need to accept that love, you need to accept that grace, you need God to, to welcome you, to be with him, and to help you to change, to walk in a covenant relationship with him. Right where you're at, right now, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, would you just pray, say, Jesus, I receive you. Just pray that simple prayer right now. Jesus, I receive you. I receive your forgiveness. Jesus, I receive you. I receive your love. Jesus, I receive your grace. Come on, some of you, you, you need to pray it again. It's not new to you, but like the harlot, you've prostituted your heart time and time again to lesser things. And, and today, one more time, you need to say, Jesus, I receive you as Lord. I receive you. I want to be with you. In this moment, the Bible says, if anyone is with him, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, and behold, all things have become new. You're a new creation in Jesus. That means when Jesus looks at your life, he doesn't see your past. He sees your future. He sees the plan and the purpose that he has for you. God, establish your work right now in this moment. Right now, God, let it seal it, God, by your Holy Spirit. Let this be a moment that is never forgotten and never run from. Let lives be changed right now upon that simple prayer. Jesus, I receive you. Be the Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name. Listen, if you prayed that prayer and you said, I, I just made that commitment to Jesus, we want to celebrate that. If you just prayed that prayer and said, today's a new day for me. Jesus is the Lord of my life. I'm coming back home to the bridegroom. I'm coming back home to my Savior. If you prayed that prayer, would you just raise your hand unashamed so we can just celebrate what God's doing in your life today? You say, yeah, that was me. God's speaking to my life today. Just make that, that public declaration by lifting up your hand and saying, today, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. My life's been changed. My life's been changed. Come on, church. Can we just celebrate what God is doing right now? Can we just celebrate that he's speaking to our hearts? He's speaking to our lives? I want you to stand with me.
We're going to close this service by opening these altars for prayer. If you just prayed that prayer a moment ago, listen, we want to pray with you. I'm going to invite you in just a moment while I pray this closing prayer to just come and find a place at this altar. We want to give you some resources. We want to help you. Because coming to Jesus is not, it's not the finish line of faith. It's the starting line. You're beginning something with Jesus or, or beginning again. And we want you to start right. So we're going to open these altars and give you the opportunity to pray. Maybe you're here today and it's not a salvation issue, but you've got a burden in your life. I want to invite you to come too. We want to pray with you today. We want to come in agreement and believe for God's best for your life. But I want to say a final word to the church. Did you know, church, that the Bible says that we are ambassadors of reconciliation? That's what the Bible calls us, ambassadors of reconciliation. That means that the reason that we are here in the earth today is that we are to be the Hoseas. We're supposed to be the ones that run into the highways and the byways and compel the lost to come in. So can I just encourage you, church, in this Christmas season, don't ever discount or disqualify anyone from God's grace that God hasn't stopped loving. We're, we're too quick to do it. We're too quick to, to write people off and go, oh, God, God would never. But you've, you've heard the second greatest story ever told. You know how lavish God's love is. You know how ridiculous and unfathomable are the reaches that he would go to to save somebody. I mean, come on. If, if God could save Saul of Tarsus, a terrorist who was persecuting and killing Christians, in the first century, if God could save Saul and empower him to, to write over half the New Testament for us, who do you know that's worse than that? I mean, come on. You don't know anybody worse than a terrorist. Don't discount how far God's love can go. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to have, have eyes open. Have eyes open. I mean, come on. This is a season. Thank God for it. This is a season that in our culture, it's still socially acceptable, acceptable, maybe even politically correct to go to church. Like even people that don't care, they go to church at Christmas. I mean, it's Christmas. Who doesn't like a cuddly baby in a manger? They might have a problem with the cross, but come on, Christmas is easy. There are people all around you that need to be rescued. standing there, ashamed and, and naked on the auction block. Their life's laid bare to the highest bidder. They don't know that God's love has already redeemed them. I want to challenge you, church. Love somebody in Jesus' name. As I pray, these altars are open. Father, thank you so much for your word today. God, thank you that you've opened our eyes a little wider to the story of redemption. As played out through the pageantry of Hosea, God, thank you that you you came and you rescued us and we're so grateful. So God, empower us by your Holy Spirit to reach others, to love others, to minister to others. God, let us be ambassadors, representatives of reconciliation in this Christmas season so that you would be glorified and that your kingdom would be expanded. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said amen.
Come on, if you know he's going to do it this year, let's give him praise today. Amen.